When language fails, said Elie Wiesel, violence itself becomes a language. I never had that feeling. Well, I'm not as noble as he. Sometimes I just want to pound my fists and howl. I'm Rav Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Season 6 Interlude on Violence with Rav Yehuda HaKohen. So I'm sitting here with Rabbi Yehuda Kohn, founder of the Vision Movement, friend, and at the moment, actually, my host. I'm really excited that we're live here in a hilltop above Beit El in your sukkah, which I'm not judging the fact that it's still up, because looking around, it might actually stay this way the whole year round. We'll just call it a clubhouse, as my friend likes to say when it's not Sukkot. It's my clubhouse. It is a clubhouse. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Happy to have you here. Uh, it's great to be here. We were just having a very wide-ranging discussion, as anyone who knows you is probably not surprised. Um, and I want to actually bring the folks listening a little bit in line with what we were speaking about. Our topic for today is violence. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, on one level, I'm interested in the topic because how it fits into the story I'm telling in the Jewish story, which mm-hmm. we'll come to in a moment. But on a more visceral level, I feel a rising tide. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've been here in Israel for 20 years came in the midst of, I like to call it the Oslo War, but people don't know what I'm speaking about, so we'll call it the Second Intifada. Sure. Right? We have seen many waves of violence. People have a tendency to, when we speak about violence, to assume that I'm talking about the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I'm not interested in right now. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in it, although it'll come up along the way because it's inevitable. What I want to talk about is the violence that exists within Am Yisrael as part of the human story and as part of the Jewish story. A little bit of background, full disclosure. I worked for a couple of years with at-risk youth mm-hmm. um, in a wilderness therapy environment where um, violence was always just below the surface. And I'm sure sometimes above. Oh, and, and I was trained what's called so nicely therapeutic crisis intervention, mm-hmm. right? Which is either neatly restraining a child with another counselor or hitting him at the waist so he hits the ground hard enough that the kid who's twice my size can't overcome me as I assert my authority within the group for the sake of everyone's safety. Mm-hmm. And I've done both more than once. Right. Um, not to mention the fact that growing up, uh, I was not, let's just say, the kindest, gentlest child in my high school. And, and I've had my fair share of fisticuffs, mm-hmm. right? And I'm also aware that I have young kids from the ages of 8 to 19, um, one who's off to the army in a matter of weeks. I'm aware that violence has a very live role within our youth culture today. Now, we could have a theoretical discussion about whether it's any more or less, I'm also not so concerned about that right now. The reality is, is that violence permeates our world. Sure. And, and, and people have very few ways of speaking about it, honestly. Mm-hmm. And so what I'd like to do in particular is delve into this question of what role has the violence played in the process of national re-embodiment that, that we're in this phase right now of returning to our land, Zionism as a political movement, Am Yisrael as a people, etc. That's That's the general. You can give a quick response and then I'll throw some quotes at you. Yeah, no, one thing I want to address, this idea of people not being honest about violence um, and maybe asking why, why aren't we honest about violence? Because I think there's something there we need to talk about. You know, there is, you know, what we can call bourgeois liberal ideology, which is essentially, you know, liberalism is the ideological paradigm of capitalism, of the capitalist system. And I think this ideological paradigm conditions us to believe that the state should have a monopoly on force. And well, you know the quote by Max Weber, the definition of the nation state is that a monopoly on the legitimate use of force to maintain order. Right. That's what the post-ideological state that upholds liberal capitalism 
Right. So, um, so I think that there's a, um, we're conditioned to think in terms of legitimate violence and illegitimate violence. Sure. And the legitimate violence, we don't even categorize as violence a lot of the time. We just think of it as maintaining law and order. And it's very important to many of us that it be clean and pretty. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't look ugly and dirty. Right. Uh, and, and that's also sometimes counterproductive because I think it's sometimes uh, the ugly violence that's a lot more productive than the clean violence. In terms I mean, of a recent example was the ugliness of the pictures of the police officer kneeling on George Floyd's neck mm -hmm. triggered an explosion that had been simmering for an awfully long time. And I think a lot of it was the visual in that. Is it? ugly situation right uh, what i would what i would point to is maybe the difference between let's say on the one hand um a bunch of isis guys um killing 50 people at a wedding mm -hmm. with uh with knives sure versus an american drone strike on a wedding killing 50 people which is like a video game yeah. Right. Like so, the latter is cleaner violence. You know, it's a guy sitting somewhere in Virginia. You know, it's way beyond arm's length. Right. And it, it's. It, I think the psychological impact on on humanity um, is more detrimental when we detach ourselves. I think it's the same thing with how we eat meat. Like you know, there's a difference between <laughs> who's we in that equation. I don't eat meat. Right. So you don't eat meat. I barely eat meat. Um, generally uh, we eat lamb and usually we see it slaughtered ourselves. This is precisely why I stepped out of the meat train, so to right. speak, 25 years ago. All right. So, um, I think there's a difference between seeing the animal die, knowing it's for you to be able to eat and then appreciating that when you eat it versus picking it off a shelf in a, in a grocery store, like that a commodity. Come, that meat comes wrapped in plastic. That's where it's from. I want to use that as the pivot to get that, to that's our- That's cleaner though. That's the cleaner it, violence. No, for sure. And it, it lacks blood and it's not visceral. And right. I actually want to use that as the sort of pivot toward the first piece that I'd like to chew on with you, pun intended. Um, a, you know, when we look back at the history of Zionism, there are many streams. And one mm. of the streams that people are less familiar with um, are of the origins of political Zionism and particularly the role that that Max Nordau mm -hmm. played. People can go back to season two if they want me to. You want to find the story that I've told about him, but Nordau is, if he's known at all, is known amongst many people as the originator of this idea of muscular Judaism. He had a sense that 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 when I use the word of the national movement for national reembodiment, mm -hmm. he had a sense that that was it was literally important. So I want to give you a couple of quotes from him. Um, because I think they speak directly to the role that physicality and then ultimately violence play to removing ourselves from exile. Mm -hmm. So he says, Zionism has awakened Jewry to new life morally through the national ideal, materially through physical rearing. We must think once again of creating a Jewry of muscles. For the first time since Bar Kokhba, there exists amongst the Jews an inclination to show themselves, to show the world how much vitality they still possess. And if that's not enough, he goes on and he talks about how for too long, we've engaged in the mortification of our flesh. I'm expressing myself imprecisely. He says it was others who practiced mortification on our flesh. And it was the greatest success, as evidenced by the hundreds of thousands of Jewish corpses in the ghettos, church squares, highways of medieval Europe. He says, in the narrowness of the Jewish streets, our poor limbs forgot how to move joyfully. In the dimness of our sunless homes, our eyes developed a nervous blink. Now, you're probably familiar with much of the romantic literature and the romantic experience that flow from this, right? Uh, Jews leaving Europe, shedding the stoop-shouldered, you know, sort of like hook-nosed stereotype and, and wanting to be clean-limbed and strong in the sun. And you're also familiar enough with the history to know that that itself from the very beginning was bound up 
with a violent struggle for soil and control of land? Uh, from the very beginning is a good question. Okay. I don't know. I don't it, want to hang up on that. Right. Fairly quickly yeah. became and, and and has maintained so to the point where it was it was quickly glorified as the you know the plow in one hand and the rifle in the other. Um, right. And we'll speak a little bit about the more formal aspects of that war as we go forward. Right. But what I'm curious is how you respond to the idea of muscular mm-hmm. Judaism and where you might see it today. Uh, so I think when we talk about figures like Nordau or Jabotinsky, who came after him. Who we'll get to in a moment. All right. Um, we, we have to understand, and this is something I think a lot of people miscontextualize, that they were, remember, Zionism was a Jewish liberation movement that was really um, styling itself after European national movements, sure. um, which means it was already flawed and a little bit, again, it, it's, we had to develop to a point to get to a place where we have any kind of liberation a trajectory that's healthy and really matim for our identity, appropriate for our okay, identity. Fair. Um, but so these a lot of what Zionism did was was really start from us being a deeply colonized people, a deeply I mean layers and layers and layers of colonization. What Mordo called the the mortification of our flesh. We were right. ground down to these poor limbs, forgot how to move joyfully. You know, our eyes developed a nervous blink. That's a physical manifestation of the mm-hmm. colonization you're speaking about. Well, well I'm, when, I, when I talk about colonization, I mean not just uh, things of that nature. I'm talking about even our self-identification. I mean, even this is post-Haskalah. And, and it, it's, no question, but I want to focus on the physical right. here because our topic is violence. Right. So it, but, but it's worth understanding the dialectical relationship between Zionism and the Haskalah. Yeah, and how both are really expressions of you know what we've talked about before is like the tribe of Yosef, and uh, and we can say that the Zionism could not have come without the Haskalah first. Yet at the same time, Zionism is very much a rejection of uh, how the Haskalah rebranded our identity as a religious one. Just for listeners, when you say Yosef, in a sense, it's the way a Jew succeeds in exile, as a, uh, just in a very general mm-hmm. sense. And there's an, a counterpoint to that, which is how does the Jew actually become the Jew at home, mm-hmm. the Judean, if it were. Right. I, I just I'm going to expand on that briefly because I think there's a um, the the tribe of Yosef in our identity. It's like a tribal force, like all the tribes of Israel are forces in our identity that I think are are a much healthier way to look at our socio political map than right, left, religious, secular. Well, we're not going to talk about the elections right now, but li- it was definitely conservative. A, a, it was definitely right. a tribal breakdown, right? Definitely, no, no. But but you, we need to understand it properly. And I think we're, without talking about elections, I think the the frustrating uh, phenomenon I see is people constantly trying to apply Western political framings to Israel's. I'm with you on that. Yeah. Um, so in terms of Nordau, um, and Zionism in general at that point, there's an attempt to fix the Jew. Yes. And without yet having the tools to understand deeply enough what's wrong with the Jew. Fair, but do you think he was incorrect that the literal physical atrophy, meaning going from the time of our sages, who who certainly after the Bar Kokhba revolt Mm -hmm. that he's referring to, downplayed at best... The role that violence and and physical force play. There's like you know even we could ask the question of whether 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 they considered weapons as a decoration for a, for a man, which could carry him out on Shabbat, mm-hmm. or whether they were simply a burden and a mm-hmm. tool which was best put aside. And we see that theme 
in a certain degree, reaching its natural conclusion in what right. Nordau is identifying as a person who can't use force even when they're called to. Right. It, it's a curse of exile, like in Parshat B'chukotai. Like, we're taught that one of the curses of exile is that we will be incapable of physical valor, of being able to defend ourselves right. the way any normal human being can defend himself. We began to relate to Gentile aggression as no different from a earthquake or a tidal wave or a hurricane. It's a natural disaster. It's something we can run from, we can hide from, we cannot fight back. You don't make the hurricane bleed. There's no such thing as fighting back. And it was really figures like Nordau and especially Jabotinsky who restored to us the notion that we can actually fight back. We are not physically inferior to these other people. But when you look at these... Wait, pause for a second. Yeah. So first piece mm-hmm. is that, that force and the violence mm-hmm. that comes from it is a step of regaining agency. It's not just agency, but in a sense, humanity, because we are not inferior to other human beings. And I think what a lot of people don't understand when they see quotes like this is that to heal ourselves, to make ourselves like everyone else, you know, and I don't mean that in a negative sense here. I'm saying just like a normal human being who, who would do what any normal human being would do in certain situations, we had to... Um, become comfortable with violence again. Now, the problem with having to go through that process is there's going to be somebody on the other end of that violence. You know, it's same so, thing, by the way, same thing with the notion of Jewish labor, meaning that was a Zionist ideal, Jewish labor. Sure. So we know internally that we, the Jewish people in Europe, um, had been uh, kept in certain positions and we were unaccustomed to manual labor, being farmers, being builders, etc. Et yep. And we wanted to fix that in ourselves. And one of the ways the Zionist movement tried to fix that practically on the ground in Palestine was through this concept of Jewish labor and businesses. Uh, the conquest of labor. That was the language that they okay. used. But, 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 right. but meaning from the inside, we understood that we were trying to fix ourselves by um, promoting the notion that Jews should be doing manual labor again, which we hadn't been for a long time, especially Ashkenazi Jews. Whereas from the outside, one could definitely see a population moving from Europe to Palestine, uh, creating infrastructure, creating jobs, and saying that these jobs are limited to our people right. and any business that hires the, the local other. population is shamed, right. is boycotted. Yeah. And, and so what... Again, Looks a lot like colonialism. Not just... And, and worse. Uh, well, it's the settler colonialism, which is the language that is used right. today, which is there's a difference. Between but, but even a lot of settler colonial projects will enlist the native population the sure. as manual laborers. South Africa being probably the best example you can think of. Right. So we didn't even do that because Zionism because our goals idea. were very different. Right, because so, we're trying to fix ourselves. So and it's good. the same thing with violence. It's so good. So pause on that thought because you, you brought up the obvious problem, meaning in a vacuum, the idea that you know in, in, in uh, Nordau's language that our eyes had grown sort of a nervous blink in the dim sunlight. We want to learn to see again. So you got to get out in the sun. You got to atrophied elements to find exercise. Leave no to leave on note is that phrase in Hebrew to build and to be rebuilt ourselves mm-hmm. through the process of becoming human again mm-hmm. on some level. You know? But you already pointed out the, the problem here is that that force mm-hmm. is applied to something. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, whether we want to have a quibble about if it started immediately or not, Fairly quickly into this story, the Arab peoples of this land, who see it as their own, um, resisted. They weren't going to just lay down. And probably the first and certainly the most vocal 
of the Zionist leaders to recognize from the get-go that, that the, the Arabs were not just a ragtag bunch of uh, randoms, but saw themselves with a sense of people and, and a native status was Zev Jabotinsky. Mm-hmm. He wrote a, a classic essay in 1923 called The Iron Wall, which if people haven't read it, Google it, read the whole thing. It's very important. Notice that he's not ashamed of the language of colonialism, like you're pointing out. He just understood the vehicle of return to be in those structures. But most importantly, Jabotinsky understood that violence is an act of clarity. Right? That if something is important for a person, they fight for it. Mm-hmm. And if you're, if you're not willing to fight, what's, fight for what's important to you, then it's not actually important to you. If you want others to fight on your behalf, he had a, a major problem with that notion because of what you're speaking about, is that the Jews need to learn to take this responsibility upon ourselves. Yeah. It, one of the things I want to say, I want to read you another piece. One of the things that Jabotinsky also had going for him, in my eyes at least, is he was a tremendous realist he, on some level, just, despite his idealism. And so I want to read a quote for you that he, uh, he wrote in, uh, it was 1938, in the midst of what was known as the, the sort of Arab revolt or the great uprising, depending on who you ask, but a time of tremendous violence, both between Jews and Arabs, between Arabs and Arabs, enormous slaughter of the British, walloping the Arabs mostly, but they weren't afraid to give a few licks to the Jews they got out of line too, right? A time of tremendous violence. He wrote, right, people say, don't dare to punish the innocent. What superficial and hypocritical nonsense. In war, any war, each side is innocent. What crime has he committed against me, the enemy soldier who fights me? And is as poor as I, as blind as I, as much a slave as I. There is no war which is not conducted against the innocent. Therefore, every war and the tribulations it brings is accursed, whether offensive or defensive. If you don't wish to harm the innocent, you will die. And if you do not wish to die, then shoot and stop prattling. True statement? It's a clear statement. It's not what I asked. Right. It's... It's true in the sense that we're living in a world where um, I'd say just like the dynamics in a family are governed by love and the dynamics in a society are governed by law and social norms, the... Which one could call fear. Maybe, uh, but I think it's maybe law more than social norms, but that's how you essentially, the dynamics of a society function. But internationally... Internationally, um, dynamics are governed by power. That's the raw power. That's the world we live in right now. That essentially, uh, when like that's why I think the concept of international law is such a lie. No, no, no but, it, but it's a stick that the strong use to beat the weak. Right, exactly. It, because on the international stage, it's power that essentially determines what's going to be. Now, personally, I don't think it's just the national stage. We don't need to spin off into that. Okay. Right. No, but but when we when we create the illusion that there's it's a law it's like we're pretending that the international community is a society is a global village yeah, that there's been central legitimacy that there's somehow a right. shared structure of values that we all buy into and are committed to you're correct there's no whereas those laws will never be applied equally to cuba and the united states nope or libya and france or israel and mm-hmm. iran mm-hmm um, right, that's a good question. Are, how are they treated? Uh, who, who's treated worse there? I guess you'd have arguments on both sides. Yeah, that's my point. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that ultimately we need to accept the fact that we're living in a world that is not ideal, where violence still governs uh, a lot of what will be, mm-hmm. right? And if you don't have power, you essentially don't have a say internationally. Right? If you don't have power, you don't have a say. Now, I would also argue that Israel's function ultimately is to bring humanity into a better world where that's not the case. But mm-hmm. right now we're living in a world of social Darwinism and pretending we're not isn't helpful to us actually fulfilling our mission of bringing humanity past it. 
Ah, so it's its own way of being dochet kits, mm. meaning it's its own way of, of trying to skip the reality of the redemptive process toward its goal. And in doing so, it's a, it's an over-idealism, mm-hmm. meaning I see this a lot um, in the liberal world in which I mostly move, um, a lot of hand-wringing mm-hmm. over the realities. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted to pull out here is that Jabotinsky is not glorifying violence here. On the contrary, in many ways, he's condemning it, mm-hmm. right? Like he's, when he describes an enemy soldier as an innocent, right, who's exactly like him, there's something very poignant in that recognition. But nevertheless, the whole driving force of Jabotinsky's reality was leave Galut or Galut, you know, liquidate Galut or Galut will liquidate you. Mm-hmm. He recognized a pressing reality. It's a pressing reality, I think, that that's retreated from many Jews within Israel. Certainly is a pressing reality that not only has been retreated from, but has been reframed for most of American Jewry. Um, and nonetheless, what you're pointing out is that at least on the international stage, and I think on the streets here, is that without force, what you get actually is more violence, not less. Often. Often. And, uh, but then the question becomes, like, in what, the, the problem is you can't fetishize it either. Yeah. And I think one of our problems, the Jewish people, one of our problems is that we're so not used to power. We haven't had power in a long time, and now we have power for the first time in thousands of years that we're not really sure how to use it properly. It's not organic. <laughs> that's, a, that's a kind statement. No, no, no. Some of us fetishize it. Yes. and and uh, romanticize over it and some of us try to overuse it and some of us try to underuse it there are Jews and Israelis who who want nothing to do with power and feel that we were better people before we had to struggle with the challenges of so power I'll, I'll give you a metaphor mm-hmm. I often think about um, do you remember the first time you came to Israel the first time yeah. the first time you came how old were you um, 15 right I mean, also 15 like a lot of you know American mm-hmm. kids come here and there's a sense of, of almost intoxication I didn't have that, I don't think. It depends. I know from my own experience, I know from many people, it may not with the first time. I had it later. I had it okay, I was saying, maybe not with the first time. At 20. That intoxication can come from the engagement with the land. Mm-hmm. That intoxication can come from this innocent sense of like, wow, I go from being a minority to majority. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the cows speak Hebrew, even though the cows here probably speak Arabic. But, um, the, you know, whatever it is. And one of the most intoxicating elements of that experience is the immediate presence of violence. Right. Think about the role that the Israeli soldier plays in the imagination of so many people who are attempting to figure out what does it be to mean to be a Jew in your land. Right. Why am I saying this? Because the model of intoxication fits all the categories. You say some people have that taste and they it, it becomes addictive. They fetishize. Mm-hmm. That's the best of experience. Other people wake up in the morning. And they say, oh, what did I do? Right. Either way, no one has a healthy relationship with the very powerful thing that we call power. Yeah, but you're right. And for me, what's most important before we can even, you know, try to solve anything, we have to understand what we're looking at. And I think so many of us misunderstand what we're talking about when we have these conversations. Like, for example, there is a perception, like when you look from the outside, if you were, if you could imagine a tourist from somewhere else who's not Jewish, not Palestinian, visiting the country, might read, like, walking around Jerusalem, walking on Ben Yehuda Street, walking in the Mamila Mall, walking in the Old City, they might see a very militarized society because there are so many 20-year-olds walking around with assault rifles. And, and you know... He's a militarized society. Yes. Um, although we don't see it, and that's the point I want to get to. Mm-hmm. We don't see it as a militarized society. Um, we don't see ourselves as fetishizing violence, um, but we relate to our army as holy. We relate to our soul. Israeli society relates depends to our soldiers. That, it depends no, who the we in that sentence I think Israeli society broadly relates to Israeli soldiers as something 
holy. I might offer sacred just because there's a nuance there that okay. holy I think wouldn't. Uh, me- yeah. Meaning, meaning it's not uncommon for older people in places like Tel Aviv to stand up on the bus to give their seat to yeah. a soldier. It's not uncommon for a soldier to have their meal paid for mm-hmm. when they go in a restaurant with their friends. People don't know this. I'm telling them. Like, you know, I have my daughter who's about to head. She's uh, 19. She's about to head in the army. Um, and has been speaking about the fact that once you have the madim, once you have the, the uniform, it's like your role in society shifts entirely. Not just obviously when you're actually in active duty, mm-hmm. but you, you become a representation of something like you're saying, which it's very important to a large swath of our society that it remains sacred. Right. So, so connecting this to the Nordau point, I, it's not because we're fetishizing violence. It's because there's something deeply emotional to the people of Israel to see a Jewish army after 2,000 years of powerlessness and vulnerability, it strikes a very deep emotional chord. Like when I enlisted in the army, like it was important to me that uh, my grandparents, who had, who had um, you know, not been in Europe at the time, but who had lived at the time of the Shoah, right, and had lost family members in the Shoah, and uh, who had tremendous struggles in their worldview as a result. Mm, I it, can imagine. It, it was important for me as a soldier that they come to Israel and come to my Tekis and see their grandson as a soldier of Israel. I, 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 I hear you. I see it. I, I share that value. I also want to add that um, it's, that role as a soldier is bound up with daily violence. Yes. Ne- next episode, I'm going, going to go into detail into what's called uh, Yitzhak Rabin's Iron Fist Policy. Mm-hmm. The decision after six weeks of the first Intifada uprising to give a clear order to the troops to start breaking legs and smashing kneecaps and kicking in doors because suppression through increased violence was the only way to control violence. Th- that's by actually the, Rabin's legacy. General, yes. But more than anything else. It, and it, by the way, flows directly into his decisions in Oslo. We'll talk about that mm-hmm. going forward. Not you and I, but we can have that conversation too at some time. But um, my point is, is that it backfired on a grand scale mm-hmm. and in many ways began to um, poison for a portion of our society the sanctity of the ability to have agency and independence, which rests on force and, yes, violence. You know, you know what I'm saying is that, is that, that uh, in addition to the questions of the fetishizing and, and in, question, in addition to the real sacred nature, which I share, that notion with you. I didn't actually have the privilege of serving the army. I was too old by the time I got here. I tried. And they basically said, stop trying. We're not wasting the money to train you to bring you in. You know? How old were you? Uh, I was 27. Oh. Um, you know, I tried. The, there's also a very important gritty reality. And I want to touch that gritty reality from a different angle. Because I know you speak in many places about this process of decolonization. Mm-hmm. Something that I'm interested in, I would say less focused on, but I'm interested in because... I really have a desire to, um, as a people, be who we need to be. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I see the difficulty of that process. And I'm constantly praying to maintain my faith that it is a process which is driven by the Banasha Olam, and therefore we are partners, but, but it doesn't simply rest with us. Mm-hmm. That being said, there's a very important thinker from the middle of the 20th century who wrote about the relationship between violence and decolonization. Of course, I'm, I'm speaking about uh, Fanon. I always want to say Francis, and I know it's not. It's Franz. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want to mispronounce somebody's name. Um, and it, we could go um, into a deep an- analysis, but one of the things I want to bring, I'm going to have a quote again for you I want to think about, but, but the thing I want to point out is that so often today, 
Israel is being labeled out there in the public sphere as the settler colonial state. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think was very important that you bring to the table that I share with you is the recognition is that we can take apart that accusation, and I believe there's both truth and incredible falsehood in it, right? Um, it, but it's so often ignored, even by Jews, that we're also the natives attempting to free ourselves. We're unique in history. We're the yeah. only example. We don't fit. Of, you are correct. Of natives using, who, who've been displaced, never lost our identity, um, came close to losing our identity a couple times, sure. but maintained it for a long time, many centuries. Under inconceivable conditions. And then actually used the tools of settler colonialism to return to our land and reestablish our independence. Well, and that's like that whole Audre Lorde question of can the tools of the master be used to you know deconstruct the master's house we but my point in bringing it up is that 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 process as we see with nordau's sense of one return to being normal mm -hmm. and jabotinsky's recognition on a very gritty reality that that if you're going to reestablish yourselves as a physical entity in the real world like you said in the international scene war mm -hmm. is real and that means there's an enemy innocent guilty don't kid yourself he said mm -hmm. either shoot and stop prattling or die there's also this sense of um, an internal transformation, which might be available specifically through violence. So Fanon writes, he says, the naked truth of decolonization evokes for us the searing bullets and bloodstained knives that emanate from it. Right? And he says that, that the well-known steps that characterize an organized society can only trump if we use all means to turn the scale, including, of course, that of violence, meaning to overcome the colonizer. He's speaking in the classic sense. Violence is inevitable. And then he says what I'm really interested in. At the level of individuals, violence is a cleansing force. Mm -hmm. It frees the native from his inferiority complex and from his despair and inaction. It makes him fearless and restores his self-respect. Now, that's a quote you'll see usually applied in our situation to the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. Right? That, that, that all violence is legitimate in the pursuit of liberation. Now, I may or may not agree with it. What I'm pointing out is that it's a quote which also applies even today with the institutions that we're dealing with to Am Yisrael's attempt to be a people in its land. Yeah. What do you say? Uh, both. I think it, it applies in both directions. I think Fanon is saying something very deeply true. Uh, in fact, Menachem Begin says something very similar. In 1944, when the Etzel joined the Lechis fight against the British, um, he put out a declaration of revolt. Sure. And uh, I think one, if I'm not mistaken, this is part of the Declaration of Revolt. It's possible he said it somewhere else, but I'm pretty sure it's here. It's been a while since I've checked. Um, that he he quotes Descartes as saying, I think, therefore I am, and speaks about the fact that the Jewish people have been you know, pushed so low to the point of being turned into bars of soap uh, that uh, at this point in our national development, we fight, therefore we are meaning the violence of the Jewish people against the British occupying our land is actually a violence that contributes to making us humans, to making us exist. Like we have to fight to exist. And I think that's very similar. I mean, obviously he's saying this uh, at least a decade and a half or a little more before Fanon uh, writes Wretched. But, um, but I think it's the same point. Well, that, it was the period where we were truly a people attempting a classic anti-colonial struggle. So it's right. not a surprise that the, uh, the oh, parallel is there. Although I'm not sure Begin understood it at the time uh, in, that, in the same way that Lehi did, meaning the fighters for the freedom of Israel 
were, you know, there was no real post-colonial discourse at that time, but they were saying something very similar to what we would today call... Well, most of the world was yet, not yet post-colonial. Right, but but they were an early pioneer. I, I would say that We've they were... have always been early adopters, the Jews. Yeah. Um, <laughs> even though, unfortunately, it's not attributed to them today uh-huh. uh, the way it should be, um, because their, their like, legacy has been kind of, like, very superficially pushed to the more extreme version of Etzel. Mm-hmm. But they were far more uh, advanced in terms of their... Uh, Political ide- thought and their vision, yeah. you know, for sure. And, and their tactics. Well, and, and hence the fact that they splintered to the left and the right, mm-hmm. meaning, meaning there was a sophistication there that couldn't easily be shoehorned into that dichotomy Western model you were speaking about. Right. I, I'd say they're still the best example of applying a Marxist-Leninist framework to Jewish issues as the Jewish people have understood ourselves mm-hmm. authentically for thousands of years. Uh, I think they're the best attempt so far. Okay. So, but talk to me about violence. Right. Meaning, meaning I heard you basically affirm that on some level, if you want to recognize that there's legitimacy in the Jewish use of violence, not just for the Jabotinsky pragmatism mm-hmm. of, like, if you're going to be here, face the reality, but also for the sense, like, what I would trace to Nordau, or as you're attributing to Menachem Begin, that, that we fight because we exist, and like, there's, a, there's an assertion of or self. To exist. To exist. Well, they, it's both. Meaning it's an expression of existence, mm-hmm. so that that if one's going to accept that reality from the Jewish perspective, then on some level one has to accept it from the Palestinian perspective of as course. well. Yeah, we, we well, you say of course, but we I imagine there's people right now who are grinding their teeth, or maybe people right now who are turning off the 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 the, the, the show and uh, canceling their subscription. Which don't do people stick out for the story, but 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 you understand that that there's always a tendency to see ourselves as legitimate and our enemy. Mm-hmm. As 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 false right. at best, if not an animal at worst. That, that, that's a very very human uh, impulse, and I think that it's important for us to evolve past it, mm-hmm. especially us, especially Am Yisrael, especially in the position we're in, especially what we can call the more vanguard thinkers of the Jewish people who are a little bit ahead of the camp. Let's be honest. I know it it takes like it, transcending the like generic narratives and who's right and who's wrong. It, it takes it it, it takes. Uh, courage and it takes uh, intellectual honesty and it takes uh i don't know it maybe it takes some psychedelics uh, <laughs> <laughs> it takes doing violence to the structures which make us feel safe mm-hmm. inside our story mm-hmm. in our own heads yes yeah um right it, it's it's a difficult There's but a i think there. but i think worthwhile uh process that we should all especially those of us who are really concerned with advancing the redemption process, advancing advancing Jewish history forward. By the way, I would also say on a more grounded level, I'm I'm concerned in advancing to a world in which there's not a massive amount of often randomly applied violence mm-hmm. that allows the society, which I love and cherish, to function. Mm-hmm. Be it from the police toward citizens, be it from the army toward non-citizens, I have a dream there. And I think that what you're pointing out is that so long as we sit within the comfortable world in which our violence is either legitimate or clean or doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all lies. It's we're all legitimized. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, and, and we're unable to recognize, well, violence is a human phenomenon. And the very fact that we're cheek and jowl with the people who have a fundamentally different perspective on what's happening, mm-hmm. then, then there's either violence or there's or there is uh, engagement. Mm-hmm. But there's no real separation. Mm-hmm. Nobody's retreating to their corners here to lick their wounds, not anytime soon. Right, and I think we we probably misunderstand what they're experiencing because I think from in in my experience again I'm not a Palestinian um or, or maybe you know we can broaden the definition of Palestinian to include me and you, but uh, I I do what I see and and based on my experiences engaging with Palestinians, 
you know, they don't perceive a like horizontal conflict playing out. They they see themselves as having lost a long time ago. Yeah. The Zionists won. We're on top of them. We're being jerks. We um we we uh create all these colonial structures that are oppressive and violent in and of themselves. What you want to talk about structural violence. We're gonna get there in a moment. And um and and for them it's not like this like two sided conflict. It's really just like a few random acts of desperate violence um, that the Zionists then... That assert their continued existence. Uh, and then we contextualize for ourselves as a like a, a war... Part of our the, ongoing struggle for survival, which is not an insane contextualization, let's right. remember, but it, it is often quite self-serving and not, and not necessarily even really self-serving. But it, it, it reinforces certain structures. So, so I want to pivot actually specifically on that point because looking ahead to where I'm going with the sort of linear historical pieces of the Jewish story, mm-hmm. um, I want to understand the evolution of the separation barrier, the wall, as mm-hmm. I just goes and call it because it's probably the best name, the wall. The security barrier. Whatever. Barrier, I, the yeah. sanitization of language there is, it makes me a little icky. It's a wall. Right. It's a wall. In some places it's a fence. It's meant to separate. Fine. In the but, places where it counts, it's a wall. Yes. If it and if it if it counted and it weren't, they would make it one real quick. Uh-huh. But but the arc that I want to chart out for people is understanding from the eighties till today is a process of of first suppression, like mm-hmm. I spoke about in the the attempts, you know, at the iron fist policy, then separation, which mm-hmm. is the hallmark of the Oslo process, right? The sense of separation, and then ultimately all of it boils down to an avoidance of sovereignty, mm-hmm. suppression, separation, and avoidance of sovereignty because. In my idealistic world, sovereignty is the right relationship to power. A sovereign uses power to hold a context that allows all the pieces to come to right relationship. That's the definition of malchut, of -hmm. sovereignty, right? And we have yet to learn how to use that power. So instead, we're trying to suppress or separate. We don't understand what what it is to be sovereign. One of the greatest manifestations of that is the fact that we built a wall straight through our land, Mm -hmm. (laughs) split it off. In, in ways which, you know, uh, it's twice as long as the so-called Green Line armistice boundary that was with Jordan. It, it, it follows a logic which is labyrinthian at best. Um, and it is, in many ways, a concrete act of violence. Tarte Mashua with concrete. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's a political story to the wall. Which we're going to give the backstory. So I want to focus on the way in which it manifests violence. And we got about five minutes, so I want to I drill down if mm-hmm. we can. I mean, if we're talking about structural violence, we're talking about a social societal structure or institution that harms people by preventing them from meeting their basic needs. Right. Right. So I want to explain. Right. Meaning if there were a Palestinian man who needed to go to access their field, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 400 meters away, and I was standing outside his house and every time he stepped out of his house, I walloped him on the head. Everyone would say, you're using violence to prevent him from going to the field. But I build the wall, mm-hmm. and people will say, that's not an act of violence. It's security. It's, you know, it's it. But on some level... Right. W- within a bourgeois liberal paradigm, yeah. Yes, but you get my point. Right. So, uh, but on some level, it's actually more complete violence. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it's so institutionalized that it's invisible. Yes. Right. Uh, and therefore clean. And therefore palatable. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so... Um, <clears throat> So the wall, really, I, I think uh, my understanding of the the wall is really not. Uh, first of all, I don't think it's done all that much for our security. I can give you the security story of the wall, but really, the political story of the wall 
was when what you called the Oslo War, the Second Intifada, broke out following, you know, like a little more than half a decade of the Oslo process. Um, Israelis were by and large kind of done with this experiment. Yeah. Like we're not interested in giving up land for peace, which is a ridiculous idea to begin with because it tells us that our peace is invaluable. We need to give something for the other guy's peace, which right. is not a good position to be in. No. Right? I want my peace to be valuable. Yeah. Right? But we but we by and large had rejected this paradigm that we were going to give up territory. Yet the Israeli government was still under tremendous pressure from the US and others to continue down this path of giving up parts of our land, of dividing of, our of country. separation. Right. The, the, well, that's not necessarily what they were pushing. They wanted us to divide our land into two separate states. That's separation. Yeah. I mean, I mean they, they don't, uh, I, don't, I don't think the Americans care that we're separate or together with Palestinians. I think they care that we don't have the biblical lands. We, we give up the lands we won in the Six-Day War. And there's a, a, a long conversation we can have about that another time. Um, but if you have a situation where the government of Israel is stuck between a population that's done with this paradigm and done with this experiment and an American government that's pushing this policy. And we Which just feels tremendous power. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, what they came up with, well, Chaim Rimon came up with this idea of a wall, right? A wall that's going to separate us from the Palestinians. Um, he pitched it to the leader of his party, the Labour Party at the time, which was uh, Benjamin Ben Eliezer, Fuad, um, and he kind of laughed at the idea. Former general laughed at the idea. He brought it to the leader of the Likud at the time, uh, Ariel Sharon, also a former former general, laughed at the idea. But then the um, 2003 elections were approaching, and both um, both parties saw that because the media had promoted it, mm -hmm. and uh, both parties saw that there were a significant number of Israelis in the center who both uh, supported this policy of a wall. Yeah, right? because the ultimate mantra in the center is us here, them there. Right. It's just an argument about where the where the here and where the there are. Exactly. Right. It, you know, and and that's why I don't think uh, politicians like uh, Itamar Ben Gvir or Bezalel Smotrich um, want to get rid of Palestinians any more or less than Benny Gantz or Yair That's what I meant. Yeah. They might put the wall somewhere different. Right. Right. <laughs> But it's ultimately still a philosophy of us here, them there. Exactly. And that became the security that was sold to the Israeli public as the security um, answer right. to the Intifada, to the Oslo War. And so suddenly, because polls were showing that there were a significant number of undecided voters between Likud and Labor, although a lot of them might have gone to Shinui, the Shinui party at the I time. I sure remember, yeah. Um, who favored this policy of a wall, who, who liked the idea. Uh, suddenly, both parties adopted it, and it became policy. It became a political magnet, and therefore right. policy. And, and the Americans never opposed it because it contributes to what they want, which right. is basically the a, border a border between Israel us and, and the West Bank. Yes. Right, that, and so it became. Uh, and, and I think psychologically, what the wall has done to us is caused us to see um, this is two different places. Yes, you know, like uh, you know, like Holon is Israel, and Netanya is Israel. And uh, Beit El and, and here Beit El is somewhere else, right? Yeah, that's like something. something Maybe like I call it Palestine. Maybe I call it the settlements, but it's somewhere else, right? And it's therefore, the us here, them there, mm -hmm. becomes a wall, not just running between Arabs and Jews, but actually between Jews and Jews, mm -hmm. right. which was a big part. We'll speak about another time of the way in which the Oslo process was framed as well. And, and a lot of the um, security improvements that came from Operation Defensive Shield were attributed to the wall. 
Yeah. And they had the opposite psychological effects on Israelis because if you tell the Israeli public, meaning what happened in Operation Defensive Shield, for the first time in roughly a decade, there was an Israeli security presence on the ground in Palestinian cities. Yes. Right? We were able to kind of dismantle the... Aggressively so, yeah. No, it was a full-scale urban warfare in places in right. Janine and elsewhere. And and if you tell the Israeli public, if you tell people in uh, Tel Aviv and in Batyam that their buses and cafes are no longer blowing up because Israeli soldiers are in Tolkarim in Janine and Ramallah, then they'll probably support that continuing. But if you tell them that they're safe now because there's a big wall separating us. barrier. They just right. kept them over there, us right. over here. Right. We, can I bring you another coffee? Right. And, and then they support that. And it was a way to kind of drive the Israeli public psychologically back into the partition camp. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, unfortunately, uh, we're coming to the end of our time. But I want to I crystallize a couple pieces out of what I heard you say. First of all, um, it's important to understand that, that politics and security are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that one of the things going forward that I feel in a responsibility of doing is help people keep their eye on how each operate in relationship to the other and that your assertion that the wall is fundamentally a political fun, uh, manifestation and not one of security mm-hmm. leads into the next crystallization which is means that that therefore the wall is not a tool of military force mm-hmm. which is its own particular type of violence but rather is a tool of true political structural violence right not oriented what hang on say mm-hmm. oriented in two directions is what i heard you say mm-hmm. it's oriented toward controlling the Arab population by keeping them over there. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that gets the popular attention of the injustice of the, etc. But it's also oriented toward Jews, mm-hmm. right? In, in order to force Jews to abandon a profound connection with the heart of our land. Yes. So, I, I you know, I think that, that um, that's an important piece that, mm-hmm place we can wrap up because of course this conversation is ongoing thank god well uh, i would, you, I would, you I want would, to make one last comment yeah, I'll give you make a... one last comment that i think that in terms of us being able to move forward in reconciling with palestinians one of the most major most significant gestures uh, israel israel has the power so we probably have to make the first move towards building trust one of the most significant gestures we can make is actually tearing down that wall and, uh, and I would point out that that will come together likely, at mm-hmm. least in the short term, with a, with a greater application of force on the ground because, because there will be a certain anarchy element that comes with tearing down the wall. Well, it depends how we do it and who we coordinated it with. Sure. I, I would ideally like to see our government um, speak to the organic leadership of Palestinian society, regardless of not how you define stooge, that. Not to the stooge institution that we've created. No, exactly. <laughs> uh, right. The, but, uh, to operate again with violence, without restraint. That was Rabin's vision that we'll speak about. With bli bagats, bli right, right, Without the Supreme Court or the uh, you know, human rights NGO world. But if we were, if, theoretically, if Israel were to engage with some kind of Palestinian leadership and say, you know, just to build trust, we're going to tear down this wall and then actually do it, but also present a process afterwards that requires, you know, us both, you know, learning to trust each other a little bit more sure. and keeping our people in line and having, you know... Being sovereign, right? which is ultimately, I think, the vision because when you don't have the ability to hold the whole situation mm-hmm. and let the pieces come to right relationship, which is sovereignty... What people tend to do is carve out a little realm within the situation that they feel they can control. Mm-hmm. And it's a mistake to think that control and sovereignty are the same thing. Control is a tool of sovereignty, mm-hmm. no question. But it's one in the toolkit, and there are many others. Mm-hmm. So um, we've reached the end of our time together. I want to thank you. I want to just ask you quickly, if people are more interested interested in asking more of your thought, 
being part of the vision movement how should they go about doing that well our programs can be found we have a lot of educational programs online um, classes we offer etc you can find that at visionmovement.org but in terms of the development of our ideas my podcast your podcast um, and many articles and uh, poems and videos, et cetera. You can go to visionmag.org. That's Vision Magazine. And Two any- thumbs up. It's great content, people. Uh, Baruch Hashem. And anybody who subscribes will uh, will also get in their email a recommended book list that I think is very important. And, I, and I'm pretty sure it includes The Wretched of the Earth by Franz Fanon. I bet it does. you got to educate your people, yourselves, yeah. people. Stretch the brains. Break down some barriers. If you have to use a little violence on our story, it's for the sake of healing in the same way that sometimes a surgeon opened things up to let out the ick. So I want to thank you for the time that you spent and uh, for making me a guest in your home today. I also want to thank all the folks that are listening. Season six is underway. I want your support. Be part of the story here. People, go to my website, jewishstory.co, and in the upper right-hand corner, you see a button that says, be a patron. You can click on that, give a little bit of per podcast support. I want your feedback too. RobMikeBoy at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook, Give me your thoughts, your questions. You can also dedicate shows. I'm happy to share the info on how to do that. I want to thank the Land of Israel Network. That's thelandofisrael.com. No, .org, sorry. They're building a center for global transcendence in the heart of the Judean mountains. I want to thank the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-D-S.org.il, for throwing the doors of the Beit Midrash open as wide as possible. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story.